Indie Girls Gone Wild. This is Joy. And this is Claire. And this is episode 75. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow, it's like our, what, is 75 like a it's it's every ep- let's just say like, every episode should be a party a big party for it us it is a big party so it's especially a party today because we have again Steph Gaudreau from Stupid Easy Paleo back on the podcast thank you Steph hi thanks for having me hey you have some super exciting news to share with us and we'll get to that so but first I want to do we we had you on episode 62 so if you guys haven't listened the listeners out there who haven't heard that episode go back and listen to that episode with Steph it was wonderful really really good information um, so we won't go too much into Steph's background because it's already been covered, but Steph, why don't you just give us a brief little snippet about you? So, um, people know who you are. People should know you, who you are <laughs> if they don't, the three, well, the three people that don't know. <laughs> hopefully they will soon. So I am the owner and operator of stupid, and I'm a certified holistic nutrition practitioner And I kind of do a little bit of everything over on the blog. So I started with just kind of putting out information and recipes. And uh, I have a cookbook coming out pretty soon, which is cool. Um, It's called the Performance Paleo Cookbook. And I also am a freelance photographer. So I kind of do a little bit of everything, which is uh, is awesome. Um, And uh, yeah, so my passion is kind of just helping people learn how to get into a paleo way of eating and kind of just like addressing better food choices and stuff like that. But I have a really vested interest in working with people um, in terms of athletes or people who are performance minded. Um, Maybe they don't compete like in enter formal competitions, but like they really care about training or they care about their sport. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of turned into, um, I guess, my specialty, if you will, because I'm an athlete and that's really important to me. So, so that's kind of where my journey has taken me in the last few years. But I started off as a high school biology and chemistry teacher. So I did that for 12 years before I moved to doing Stupid Easy Paleo full time. Yeah. Awesome. And you took the big leap and just dropped everything and <laughs> dove right in. Well, dropped everything and then picked a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. I picked- <laughs> Dropped well, everything I, and picked it back up. Yeah, I would I would describe it as like kind of tepidly stepping off the edge of the pool instead of like really just diving in. But <laughs> like, uh, okay, yeah. okay, that's awesome. Um, actually, you said something about uh, helping people transition into paleo that made me kind of want to ask and re or cover again. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit in episode sixty two. But when you say paleo, what does paleo mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've been eating paleo for almost five years. It'll be five years next month. And I've really kind of reflected on what it it means to me and how it's changed over the last half a decade, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what it means to me is focusing your nutrition on meat, seafood, eggs, vegetables and fruit, and healthy fat. And then depending on your athletic goals or your context or whatever your health goals are, you know, tweaking the amount of carbohydrate that you eat or upping your protein up and down. Um, And then also, you know, to me at this point, it's not just about food. It's about getting really good sleep, addressing other parts of my lifestyle, like my stress management, my work, how I balance it out with playtime and just social time. And to me, it's really kind of the overall package at this point. It's mm-hmm. not just a diet. It's it's really a way of life and, and kind of this more holistic way of addressing um, how, how all these components in my life come together. So it's not just food. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I know that a lot of people, you know, like talk about that paleo is different for everyone. You know, it's a framework. And so I think that that you know, it goes along with what you were saying about identifying your own needs and your own goals and your own, you know, experiences and adding, you know, maybe some, <clears throat> excuse me, some uh, grains, you know, as you can handle them, as you see fit and just kind of working around that, which I think is what is so nice for most people about paleo is that they come into it and realize that it's adaptable and it's doable and it's not like this huge black and white yes and no all the time. Yeah. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's the way that they have to start, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're, 
you're, you're like, all right, I'm going to make this massive shift in my life. I'm going to completely overhaul the way I've eaten for the past 20 to 30 plus years. Right. And it takes a mind. It's like a mindset thing, but the yes and no, or the black and white list is, is kind of for most people, the easiest way to just wrap their brains around it. Because if you, you know, if you start throwing in all these gray area and like, well, maybe this and maybe that it's really hard to just kind of settle in on a starting point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so I've found for me that as time has gone on, yeah, I started very much like, okay, yes and no, like I can't have this, I can't have that. Um, and then it, it kind of evolved into more of a situational or um, context-driven type of way of eating. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty normal for a lot of people. And I posted something about this on Instagram maybe last week or the week before, and I heard a lot of that echoed in what people were saying. They were like, that was totally me. I was definitely living by a list. And over time, I got to learn more about myself and how food affects me, or I did a Whole30, or I, you know, whatever their elimination, they did some elimination protocol. Right. And they were like, I really learned that I can tolerate this food, but that other food is a no way type of type mm-hmm. of deal. So I think that's what makes paleo sustainable as a, as a lifestyle and, and a way of eating long term for people, you know, because nobody is going to stick to like a lose seven pounds in seven days diet for right. five for five years. Right. It's, on the right. first day, eat two grapefruits. And on the second yeah. day, you have, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's not like a gimmicky thing. It's not like a, you know, weight loss isn't the only goal. Um, it's more of a holistic kind of health driven yeah. um, type of thing. And I think that's what makes it sustainable for a lifetime is that you, right, know, you can it, adapt with, to your own goals as your goals change. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Like Joy was ready no, I was going to say, cause you know, can you just briefly touch on the, you went from an endurance athlete to just strictly strength training. Mm-hmm. Um, and remind me again, when that shift of of paleo kind of entered was it when you were doing endurance or was it after it was when I was in doing was doing endurance yeah. um, mountain biking yeah so um, I had dabbled in running a little bit kind of in 2007 to 2009 and I am more like a like a water buffalo trying to run than a gazelle like <laughs> I'm I not can relate to that for, I can totally relate to that <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not built for like graceful running so um <laughs> But I primarily was racing bikes for almost 10 years, and I started eating paleo in January. It was January 10th of 2010. Um, I learned about it prior to that in the fall. So I was racing bikes at the time and and mostly focusing on – I had moved away from downhill racing at the time, and I was mostly doing kind of cross-country, like – and then I kind of transitioned into long distance cross country riding and racing. So anywhere from six to 12 to 24 hours, um, would be the duration of a race. And yeah, so I was already racing and and riding bikes and doing endurance stuff at the time when I picked paleo up. Mm -hmm. And then, um, in 2010, toward the end of the year, I started doing CrossFit as a way to supplement um, and build some strength because, man, I was really weak when I, when I came off or I'm still doing, um, endurance races and I was doing a little bit of Xterra, which is off-road triathlon. I was, it was really, I was like, I could go forever and ever, but I wasn't very strong. Mm-hmm. So I started CrossFitting and, um, I had some back problems from just so much riding and stuff. And then I kind of gradually transitioned into, more or less just doing CrossFit and then found weightlifting. And that's what I do now. So I've, I've kind of like crossed the, <laughs> the divide right. of like, you know, <laughs> from one extreme to almost the other where now I do very little to almost no cardio training. Nice. Um, <laughs> and that's all I used to do. So it's been a, it's been an interesting transition, but it's been cool to see how a paleo type approach to my nutrition as an athlete has really carried me through you know, this whole um, range of really of different types of sports. So it's been, it's been really cool to see for myself personally, how I've adapted what I've eaten and, and my approach to it, but it's all still been centered around a paleo type approach. So that actually is a great uh, segue into one of the questions that one of our listeners had for you was, 
Um, she said, I know you're an Olympic lifter at heart. However, I was wondering if you do any sort of conditioning. If so, what types and how much? So you kind of just talked about how you really transitioned from one to the other, but <clears throat> do you still have any sort of like Metcon or quote unquote cardio that you do? Or do you kind of prescribe to like the, what do you do for strength? I lift weights. What do you do for cardio? I lift weights faster. <laughs> yes. I do warm up sets of like four to six and that's when I start to breathe hard. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, actually, I really don't do any Metcons at this point. Um, every once in a blue moon, I'll jump into something. Um, I was in Thailand really recently with Nick Massey from Paleo Nick. We, uh, we took a group of folks there for a culinary adventure, and there were about 20 of us, and most people there were CrossFitters. So every day we would go to CrossFit Chiang Mai and work out in the morning. So I d- jumped into some Metcons there. Mm-hmm. But on a, in an average week, I really don't do any cardio and I, I really don't do any Metcons. Um, I have some kind of like shoulder things that flare up when I start to introduce a lot of stuff like pull-ups. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually training to jump into a competition through Power Athlete that they had a couple months back. And uh, I started to like add in pull-ups again, like kipping pull-ups because right. I occasionally I'll go over and do a bunch of uh, strict pull-ups just to work that stuff. But I introduced some more kipping stuff because I knew that was going to be in the competition. And sure enough, my shoulder started to act up. So yeah, yeah, um, I really just, I don't do a lot um, for that sort of stuff. We do some walking, my husband and I, um, you know, we'll go for walks and stuff like that. And, and then we just weight lift. So we do a bunch of reps and sit down. (laughs) And that's, (laughs) Yeah, so those warm-up sets, like, you get pretty sweaty sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's let's segue into, I know you want to talk a little bit more about strength training, um, and specifically women in strength training. So do you want to just kind of talk a little bit about why? Why in the first place should women strength train? Yeah, it's, this is kind of, you know, so I mentioned how helping athletes has become this kind of primary focus for me, but my vested interest is really in helping women make the transition to and or support them in their pursuit for strength training. And to me, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It could be powerlifting. It could be Olympic lifting. It could be CrossFit. It could be strong woman. It could just be, I like to just go pick up a barbell at, you know, 24 hour fitness. Like, yeah. yeah, I really don't care what it's Called, as long as you like you're after the pursuit of lifting weights um, and doing it heavily and trying to involve a barbell, I think we really need this kind of collective dialogue amongst women for support because you know a lot of people are really intimidated still to just jump into a gym and like start doing it. And so it's become kind of a focus for me and something that I've got a another project kind of behind the scenes that I'm starting to work on that's going to address that sort of stuff. But I really, uh, I took an interest to it specifically for helping women a little bit more this past year as I saw my own kind of journey into strength training starting to evolve. And just from a health perspective, I think it's incredibly important. We talk a lot about trying to reduce body fat and, you know, kind of like this idea of like, well, if you're not fat, you're fit and all, and all this stuff. But, um, Earlier this year, I was at the Ancestral Health Symposium, and a good friend of mine, Jamie Scott from New Zealand, was there. And his presentation, like, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments when you're sitting watching a presentation or you're listening to somebody speak, and everything just kind of like focuses in on that one moment, and you're like, yes, yeah. this. It yes. all just feels like it just the stars just align and everything's coming together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it really clicked. And his his presentation was really amazing. It's actually on YouTube and you can find it if you search um, AHS 14 on YouTube. But the presentation was basically the role of muscle in health and disease as we age. And I really, it resonated with me that he talked a lot about, we use fatness as, you know, a measure of health in our society. Like there's body mass index, there's you know, visually we focus on being, you know, as lean as possible and not having body fat. But what we're really missing is that just a lack of body fat doesn't mean you have a good amount of muscle mass. Right. I actually heard it. uh, I saw, I remember seeing a post from Jason Khalifa 
where he mm. was talking about how his health insurance premium went way up because his BMI was so high. It's like, right. this is freaking Jason Kaliba. Like, and it was like, you know, just that this, this number that you assign to people's quote unquote body mass is so arbitrary based on their health. When in the, you know, on the opposite side of the spectrum, like you could have a girl who's 120, you know, five foot six, 120 pounds walking around with 30% body fat who has, you know, eczema and is never, you know, not sleeping and has anxiety and like who's healthier. Right. But I think one thing that um, is really interesting, especially in the mind shift for women that you're talking about, like, you know, when you, a couple minutes ago, we're talking about how you don't really do cardio. Like even still, I mean, I've been doing CrossFit for almost three years. And even still, I like had to almost consciously remind myself like that, you know, I like I found myself starting to think like, well, how would you, how would you reach your goals if all you're doing is lifting? And I, you know, if I'm in that spot, I can only, you know, if I'm still subconsciously sort of going there, like I can only imagine that the vast majority of women, you know, the first thing they think is like, well, how can I just cut out cardio? Like I can't cut out cardio. That's the whole point. Like that's how you, mm-hmm. you know, that is how you quote unquote get lean, get fit. Like I've been uh, going to the, the gym on the DU campus a lot lately. And there are just these, you know, girls on the, on the elliptical for hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, to that, they probably look at me and think you're doing 15 minutes on a kettlebell. That's not a workout. Right. You know, and it's just like this mindset of like, people think that's what they have to do. That cardio well, is, I always think, equals fitness. And I, I always think of like, whenever I go into Lulu, that like yeah. all of their, all of their, you know, logos say sweat once a day. And I'm like, well, what if, <laughs> like, yeah. what if, walking or what if you lift and you don't sweat like you're still I mean that's what my mind goes to of like the culture of what that Mm -hmm. what the workouts have to look like and what your body has to look like yeah I think the thing that we're missing the the education part on is the role that muscle mass takes in metabolism Mm -hmm. and the the ability of muscle to act almost as an endocrine organ and to actually affect metabolism in tissues that are not muscle mass. So for example, what I mean is like, if you're, if you're really working on building muscle mass, you're able to then affect tissues in other part of your body because of that increase in muscle mass. And really that like you're, you're, you're activating, um, that whole system and that, that endocrine function. So Mm -hmm. you're able to reduce body fat. Um, you're able to, you know, improve your insulin sensitivity and stuff like that. And we know that that happens, right? When we exercise, we get more insulin sensitive. Um, And I think that that's kind of the disconnect is we think like, okay, you have to get a heart pumping cardio, like one hour of sweating um, kind of workout, like steady, steady state to be, to be really positively affecting body composition. Like the orange theory kind of idea, like you have to have a certain heart rate for a certain amount of time in order for it to be effective. The the afterburn. Right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that stuff is kind of, you know, there's a lot that's driven by popular media. There's a lot that's driven just by old misconceptions. And, and I think slowly things are starting to change, but, but yeah, I agree. People, I think, would look at weightlifters and go, well, you're not really like exercising, but you know, you kind of look at my husband and I always talk about this, like form follows function. And if you're lifting, if people have a main goal of affecting body composition, you know, if they're going to go in and lift some heavy weights, they're going to do some heavy kettlebells, like whatever they're going to do, maybe they do some walking or they pull a sled for a while Mm -hmm. um, afterwards. And that's kind of how they're, how they're exercising. I mean, if you're doing those sorts of things and the other pieces are falling into line too, like you're sleeping well and this and that, I mean, you'll see positive effect, changes in body composition and, yeah. and it's because it's following the function. Like it's, it's the exercise that you're doing. It's the training that you're doing. Um, and, and it's really kind of cool how that happens. Whereas I think a lot of times people try to focus on the, the other way around. So they're right, like, they try to reverse after- engineer it. Yeah, like you're after the form, so you try to figure out what exactly you have to do and the exact number of reps. And it, I think we overanalyze it to totally. a, to a degree, just totally. a little. Yeah, <laughs> just a little. Yeah, there are, there are only about a million different exercise programs out there. Yeah, and I think you know there are multiple different ways to to achieve the same result. And I'm not I'm not here to tell everybody that they have to be an Olympic weightlifter just because that's personally what I choose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think a lot of the things that we do, and, and I say we in, in collective, like in the in the fitness realm, um, a lot of the things that we do actually are counterproductive to changes in body composition. Um, you know, we're doing lots of like steady state cardio, or we're withholding big time on calories and fat. And, you know, it's all stuff that's actually making it harder for us to achieve the body composition that we want. Um, you know, so I don't know how that's going to change over time. And I think we're making some positive strides toward that. And there's more acceptance of women lifting heavy and it's, you know, obviously CrossFit has done a lot to foster that, that community aspect, but, uh, but I think we still have a long ways to go. Yeah, totally. Can you talk a little bit about breaking it down a little with the Ollie versus CrossFit versus general strength training? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think if you're just kind of wanting to get into things and you're, you think a CrossFit gym is, is a good way to go. Like, I think that's a, that's a, a decent choice. Um, because you're probably going to be under the supervision of a coach and you're not going to be doing it alone. And right, someone else is doing your programming and telling you what to do and when to do it. Yeah. And I think that's valuable for a lot of people. It takes some of the stress away or they don't have to worry about like, Oh, I'm have to do this by myself and find a gym that's going to let me do it. Totally. But you know, it, different CrossFit gyms have different types of programming and, and you may not get enough regular exposure to the lifts that you need to do to see kind of, I get, I would call it maximal improvement, um, in those lifts and in that basic strength training. So I, I'm kind of a fan, like if you're just starting out of finding a gym where you can do some basic barbell training, um, you know, some linear progression, some squats, some deadlifts, some presses and keep it super basic. And it's not the, the problem. The only problem I see with that sort of training is it's not sexy. Totally. totally. You know, you're like, oh, I have to go in and just do my, you know, squatting and I'm going to do like some basic rep schemes and like, there's not a whole lot to it. That's exciting. Right. There's no like punchline. Yeah. It's not like, you know, and kind of in CrossFit, everybody's like, I want to do muscle up because it's like yeah. the coolest thing. And it's like a high level skill and, uh, in the CrossFit world and, and right. all this sort of stuff. But like, yeah, I mean, you're going to be over there grinding away on deadlifts and squats and presses and right. And you're not going to PR every day. And you're not going <laughs> to like, nobody's, you know, high-fiving you for finishing your five sets of five. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, and I think in the beginning, it's actually a really great way to, sh to see improvement in, in PRs. Um, but it takes a lot of work and it's not super sexy. But right. if you want to just get really strong and you want to do it in a way that's probably as safe as you can possibly make it, I think that's probably a really great choice. Um, a lot of people you know, they look at Olympic lifting and they're like, wow, it's, that seems super dangerous. And it's, yeah. you know, it's high velocity and you're moving, you know, heavy weights really fast. And there is a higher level of skill involved than just say squatting or deadlifting. And so for some people, you know, I think Olympic lifting is a really great way to, to train. I'm a little bit biased, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's for everybody. And, and I definitely recognize that for some folks and, and even a lot of athletes that they introduce Olympic lifting into their program to kind of build that, you know, speed and power, you know, doing power cleans and power snatches are, are fine for a lot of people. Like, right. Just to work know. on that speed versus like the super intense mechanics of it. Yeah. Like, um, I don't remember who I was talking to, but they were talking about how at their university, you know, they do like power cleans, but they don't do power snatches on the, uh, the baseball team. And yeah. it's like, well, think about it. I mean, baseball players have to be able to throw and use their shoulders and keep their shoulders and elbows really healthy. And, right. And you know, snatching, snatching incorrectly is not, maybe not the best, the best risk to be undertaking. Yeah, there's just a higher risk involved with that sort of movement for that particular athlete. Totally. So, you know, I think kind of finding, if you're interested in Olympic lifting, finding an Olympic lifting dedicated gym mm -hmm. where you can go in every day and, and lift and, and work under the supervision of a coach who's very experienced is, is probably a good way to go about that too. But, you know, if you just want to get like overall kind of badass and strong, <laughs> I, I think like the, the general type of... Uh, 
you know, of um, linear progression type programming is pretty cool. And, and or if you can find a, a CrossFit gym that has a strength bias program. Yeah, I was going to say that's also kind of one of the nice things about potentially starting in a CrossFit gym is that it can be a little bit more tough and honestly more intimidating to just walk into like a straight Olympic gy- lifting gym or to first of all find a straight Olympic lifting gym and let alone to walk into it as a woman by yourself, you know, kind of being like, hey, I don't know any of these lifts. So, you know, starting in CrossFit, I think has been nice for a lot of people because it introduces them to that in a way that's a little bit less, I guess, intimidating. Because um, isn't that how you started, Steph, where you were like, I like CrossFit, but I really like the lifting part the best. And that's kind of how you zoned in on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I, yeah. I feel like the USAW has like has released a lot of uh, kind of opinions lately, too, of like that CrossFit is kind of saving Olympic lifting. Like it was kind of everyone had sort of forgotten about it. And then CrossFit started and all of a sudden it's hugely popular again. And I think we talked about this in the last the last time you were on that, like no one really starts CrossFit and then decides they want to be a professional gymnast. But or, you know, that decides that they love CrossFit, love running during CrossFit so much that now they're going to go become a runner. But a lot of people, it seems, have started CrossFit and really fallen in love with weightlifting and taken it all the way over to the side of weightlifting. Whereas I don't see that happening really at all. Yeah. With any of the other sort of isolated skill parts of CrossFit. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, well, our gym, for example, is is half weightlifting and half CrossFit. And we run CrossFit classes several times a day. And there's, uh, there are Olympic lifting coaches. We have a separate kind of area with a bunch of platforms. There are Mm -hmm. Olympic lifting coaches on all day as well. So you can theoretically do one or the other or both, um, which, which is really, really, really cool. And a lot of CrossFitters end up kind of drifting toward the Oli side of things because they know that the facility is there and the, the coaches and stuff like that. But yeah, like I, I, my, before I came to CrossFit, like in my early twenties, I was kind of a gym rat. Like I would go and bench press and I would do some squats, probably horribly wrong, um, <laughs> with form. And I, you know, I don't even remember cause it was 15 years ago, but, <laughs> but you know, I would go in and do my bicep curls. And totally. um, so I, I wasn't unfamiliar with, I guess, weight lift, like lifting weights in general, but I had never done an Olympic lift ever in my life until I started doing CrossFit. Mm-hmm. So the first time I ever did a clean and it, I, it, I laughed so hard because I, I went back and I found some old videos of me when I had just started CrossFitting and I looked at myself doing a power clean and I was like, Oh my gosh. That's so, <laughs> Whose so, body is that? That's it, I looked, I moved so awkwardly and yeah. you know, cause I was literally just learning the, these skills and, yeah. and yeah, I think CrossFit is a really great way to introduce that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, after I decided I was going to stop competitively CrossFitting and I knew that weightlifting was my favorite thing and being strong was my strongest asset, it was kind of a natural fit. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the membership of USAW has tripled in the last couple of years. And I don't think anyone can deny that CrossFit has had a huge um, effect on that. And totally. it, yeah, our, 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 the co-owner of our gym is a very high-level weightlifting coach in USAW, and he is very in the know with what's going on. And, and he's just like, yeah, I mean, he's been lifting for longer than I've been alive, basically. And he's like, I, you know, it, w- CrossFit really saved weightlifting yeah. in this country. And so it's cool to see how many people are picking up the sport now and, and really loving it. Do you have any, um, do you get a lot of questions about what type of program women should be doing or, you know, do you follow anything in particular as far as when you go in to work out? So our gym programs Olympic lifting uh, for basically four workout days a week. And we can go in and choose any day from that board. Uh, A lot of us are on more specific programs to address our own personal weaknesses and like specific events we might be training for. So I get custom programming from my coach. But I think it's really important for folks to kind of like stick, pick a, pick a program and stick to it. Um, I get a lot of questions about like, oh, I'm doing this, but it's, I'm not really seeing results. And, and kind of when I probe further, I hear things like, well, I was on program XYZ and then I, I, I did that for a couple weeks and then I switched to a different program and I did that for a month or two and then I didn't really see the results. And so I switched again. And so I see a lot of like program hopping, 
yeah, going totally. on. I am so guilty of that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's been a month and I'm kind of bored of front squats. So I think I'm going to go back to like wads and then I like go to wads and I'm like, man, I'm getting weak. I guess I'll go back to snatches. And then I do like three weeks of snatches. And then at the end of like six months, I'm just kind of standing there being like, well, I didn't actually really get anywhere because yeah. I've just been sort of like spreading myself way too thin across everything. Yeah, definitely. And I, that's, I think, above and beyond. Like, I think everybody wants to know what's the magic, what's the holy grail of programming? Like, which, um, which gym is putting out the best? Because, you know, some gyms put out their programming for the, for the public. And, right. you know, a lot of them have high-level CrossFit competitors that either follow that programming or have come out of that programming. And so people think, all right, well, which one am I going to choose that's going to get me there? And or which like online program am I going to follow or which coach? And it's really tempting to kind of go after what's really shiny. Um, once again, like the sexy programming. Yeah. Go after the sexy programming or you're like, wow, like three people from the games were doing that programming. So I'm going to jump on that as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer for a lot of people, but it's just a matter of consistency. Right. Totally. So whatever you're picking is just to stick with that thing for long enough to see results. So like if you're committing to do a hatch back squat program, like you're going to be in that for three months. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't do it for like two weeks and go, I didn't see any results. So, yeah. so uh, it yeah. doesn't work. It doesn't, hatch doesn't work or, yeah. you know, totally. um, I know small of juniors come up in some of your programming like well I did a week of small of and then I didn't PR right and all that happened was that I couldn't sit down on the toilet for three yeah. days <laughs> you had to do the toilet trust fall for like yeah. <laughs> the toilet trust fall that's amazing <laughs> I can't t- my friend Claudette told me that once and I was like I'm totally stealing that um toilet trust fall line <laughs> so true it is so true that like, is the best oh my term. god I hope that I don't like break the toilet seat off with my yeah. impact <laughs> oh like goodness. you need safety handles for a couple of weeks oh but, yeah but yeah I think like even if if your gym is doing a particular training cycle or whatever you're on is just to like stick with that um if your gym has good programming like I see a lot of people and they're like well I just want to go to open gym now so I can do my own thing and yeah and while I think that's okay um you know, like your coaches at your gym know you better than some anonymous online program. And yes, you know, at least if your coaches are kind of paying attention and they know you, they'll be like, um, uh, yeah, like you look pretty tired. Maybe, you know, you should go home today or, and you they know. potentially know what you need more than you know what you need. Cause that's their job is to know how to get people from A to B. Whereas- oh, I- yeah, no athletes have ever been completely irrational in their own assessment of their own. Oh yeah, definitely their own not. Needs. <laughs> I don't. I feel like you totally have like nailed this on the head. I feel like this is something that I've been dealing with for really like the last like year, like a year ago, of over a year ago. About like beginning November last year was the first time that I was like, you know what, I'm tired of Metcons. Like I'm gonna start my own catalyst program. And then the last year has just been nothing but me like picking up one program, putting it down taking a break, picking up another program, trying to figure out what I want to do. And then I, here I am a year later being like, I don't feel like I have improved at all. I mean, I've had a couple of like kind of minor PRs, which frankly have mostly come from the information that I've gotten from coaching, right. where it's like, you know, I, I tweak an athlete and saying, and think to myself, oh, I could use that piece of advice as well. But like when it comes to overall progress, like my numbers are probably exactly what they were a year ago. And I think that has very little to do with anything other than just me being like, well, I'm starting this new catalyst program. And then like three weeks later being like, well, I kind of got bored of it. Well, I'm going to start this other program. Well, I'm in grad school, you know, blah, blah, blah. And just like, I think that that's huge for me. And I think it's also something that you're totally right. I see a lot of people that have that problem. And it's kind of goes back to that, like seven, lose seven pounds in seven days sort of thing Mm -hmm. where it's like, you want it to be sexy. You want it at the end of the day. Like, have you ever seen that meme with Honey Boo Boo where she's, like, grabbing her belly and it's, like, me yeah. looking for abs after my – after 20 sit-ups? I'm like, that's so me. I'm like, okay, I did my sit-ups. Where are my abs? Yeah. Like, well, and I think that translates over to nutrition as well. Totally. I get a, I get a lot of emails that are like, oh, I did – I'm I've been doing paleo for two weeks and the first two weeks went really well and I lost X number of pounds. 
And now like it's starting to slow down and I'm like, all right. Yeah. Cause you're, I mean, <laughs> right. Totally. You can't yeah. lose eight pounds every week for the rest of your life. You're going to yeah. die. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think, you know, patience is the name of the game there in nutrition and training wise and really taking the, the mentality that like, if you want to really improve at, like if you want to become a great violinist, you're going to have to practice and you're going to practice a lot, probably every day. Yeah. And if you want to become a good weightlifter or you want to get stronger in a particular lift or you want to develop a certain skill, you have to give yourself exposure to that through repetitions totally. and, uh, you know, through volume over time. And I think that's kind of what people miss is like, you know, you look at Olympic weightlifters, for example, and you, you know, people that go to world championships into the Olympics and you just, they move so fluidly and they're so fast and you're like, how did they do that? And it's really, they've been doing it for years and years and years, totally. you know, and it's, it's just exposure and, and practice over time. And, and that's what separates, you know, and obviously there's some amount of genetic potential and stuff in folks that make it yeah. to, <laughs> like the elitist levels that exist, but yeah, they wouldn't be there unless they put in the work as well. Yeah. That's like the one, the one line that TJ always says is just time, time under the bar. Yeah. Like there's no, there's no, uh, not exception, but no magic pill for that. Yeah. No, there's not. And you know, I, I no came back, I came back to the Olympic weightlifting side of things for, for like full time, kind of what I was doing for my training back in January. Mm -hmm. So it's been 11, almost 11 and a half months. And, you know, it's been a total up and down ride. And if you look at kind of my progress from a year ago, yeah, I've made significant progress, but it, it's not, you know, I'm not like, wow, I put 20 kilos on my snatch, you know, right. it's, it's actually refining the really small stuff and um, breaking a lot of bad habits. And that stuff takes time. And I can't tell you how many times I've been frustrated. It seems like the only place I cry is at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like how many tears I've, I've left on the platform because it's really frustrating to want to affect change in your, in your lifts or in whatever skill it is so badly and, and for it to just take a really long time. But I mean, none of us are children anymore and learning those, those motor pathways and, and really having that stuff sink in takes a long time. Totally. Yeah. I want to get to one quick question before we move on to talk about your book. And we've been getting a lot of comments lately about, and this kind of goes along. So it's like kind of two part question. I want you to talk a little bit about injury prevention, but there's something that came up um, with our listeners as well as in the last episode that we recorded with you about stress on the body and how backing off of either Metcons or even just working out and doing rest days and how, you know, some people are saying, well, I'm not, I'm actually seeing negative effects, you know, from working a fat, working out and I'm not sleeping or I'm not, or I'm gaining weight or what have you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I just think that's something that Claire and I have ha heard a lot of comments about lately that we, we don't feel like we have the resources or the information to really answer that question. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of just from a, a general like stress perspective, I guess I'll address that part first. Um, you know, any, Stress can stress is just not psychological, and I think we oftentimes associate the word stress with psychological stressors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my boss is a jerk. I'm having relationship problems. I'm in debt. Um, I'm so busy, and I'm in school and trying to balance a hundred thousand things. I'm a new parent, right? Okay. So we we kind of like take stress a lot of times in our society to mean only psychological or mental stress. And really, physical stress is a huge component of our overall stress load. So any kind of training that we do or any kind of, like, if we're dealing with some kind of toxicity in the body or poor nutrition, you know, like, there's so many, poor sleep, like, there's so many physical components to that. And I think a lot of times we miss out on objectively assessing how much stress we're actually under. Um, and that a huge portion of stress for some people comes from their training. And totally. it's it's not actually positively affecting their overall health. 
And I think the thing I struggle with just mentally is just wrapping my head around as we talked about this last time on our last episode was, you know, working out is supposed to be good for you. Mm-hmm. So how can it be bad for you? Right. So, right. I mean, in, in a lot of, in a lot of types of training, you know, we see basically an increase in the stress hormone cortisol and, you know, cortisol kind of gets a bad rap. People always talk about, oh, my cortisol is messed up or it's too high. And so I think people think that all cortisol is bad. But what I talk about in my seminars is like hormones are neither, they're not necessarily bad by nature. When they start to, when we start to have problems is when those levels are too high or too low. Right. In theory, all hormones have a a purpose that is going to help your body. That's why they're there. Right. They're just messengers. But when things get screwed up is when the messenger is not there in the num- in the amount it needs to be or there's too much of that thing. So by introducing a lot of training that's going to drive cortisol up in addition to having a very stressful life, which a lot of folks who are kind of like that of that type A personality do, mm-hmm. um, and like that more is more mentality which is like, well, I'm not get, I'm not seeing the performance results that I need, so I need to train harder and longer. Right. Or, um, or I'm not seeing the nutrition goals that I'd like to see, so I'm going to withhold more calories and I'm going to eat less. Right. So we kind of have this like reverse mentality of what actually needs to happen for mm-hmm. a lot of folks to kind of calm that stress and and bring in a large part, their cortisol levels down because cortisol affects a myriad of different hormones. It's not just, you know, okay, like your cortisol is just affecting one thing. It's, it's really kind of a cascade. So for a lot of folks who are seeing, you know, down, down, the downward trends in, let's say their performance or their body composition, sometimes doing more of that thing is actually going to make it worse. Um, so, for example, doing a lot of Metcon stuff, um, I was just talking to a friend of mine who is uh, a mom, and she's just had another baby a few months back. So she's, you know, a new mother again, and she does competitive CrossFit, and she's a, she's a phenomenal athlete, and I love her to death. And she got a hold of me and said, you know, um, when I strength train, I'm okay, um, I'm not sleeping really well, and when I do a Metcon, I like I mentally feel like I just don't, I can't do it, and I feel like I want to roll into a ball and just cry. And you know, and so it's kind of an indication, like that's a huge message that your your body and your mind are sending you to almost like to protect you. Um, I really think that that's a mechanism that we sometimes ignore. We just are like, tough it out, you know, get over it. And we have that kind of like, totally, you know, just like suck it up buttercup. And for some, (laughs) right. For some people that's actually super damaging because their bodies are telling them to stop or to like, in her case, she's like, I'm okay when I strength train and I'll do some heavy squats and do a short session and get out of there. And it's okay. But when I have to do a Metcon and really push my body into that territory, I feel like I'm going to fall apart. Yeah. Um, And it's, again, it's not a knock on the training methodology itself. It's just the understanding that we're all at different places. And in her case, being a relatively new mom and, you know, already being sleep deprived and managing to deal with two other children and whatever the demands are of her life is just, it's not fitting with that particular training methodology right now. And so my advice to her was to focus on her strength training and do some walking and, you know, things will work themselves out in time. And I'm sure at some point she'll get back to the CrossFit stuff and the Metcons. But, you know, for now, it's actually, it's actually not helping. It's making things worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I got to say stuff, the last episode we recorded with you, I can't even tell you how much this has helped me as far as just wrapping my head around certain types of workouts and that it doesn't always have to be hundred percent pushing to your max every single time you work out. And, mm-hmm. um, so I've just been, well, I'm grateful for the information, but it's just such a nice thing too to have, you know, when I go in and see a wad, that's just <clears throat> not all out crazy. I appreciate that just as much as the crazy ones. Like the other day I was walking into the gym and, um, someone was leaving and I was like, how's the workout today? And he was like, eh, it wasn't really much of a workout. And I remember thinking, like, I used to think like that. I used to think, and now I go and I do whatever it is, and it feels good, and to feel good is a success. And it doesn't have to be, like, 
you know, laid out on the floor. Yeah. Oh my God. You know? So yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the injury piece goes to some extent hand in hand there. Um, obviously there's always the potential for freak injury. Like how I broke my finger in the gym was completely, I wasn't even exercising. I was rolling a barbell off the platform to put it away. And my finger got, got kind of smacked against the plywood by the empty bar. So I broke my finger, which is totally stupid. Right. And and so there's never, like you can never protect against those kind of freak injury things. But like if it's an overuse injury and I see this kind of a lot um, and I, you know, when I hurt my back a couple years ago, it was kind of the same way. Part of it's ego driven, Um, you know, like, Oh, I can handle that weight because everybody's looking at me and, and, or I want to try to beat my old time and, or I want to try to beat this person in the workout. And so sometimes we, you know, we definitely overstep what we should do. Um, and ego gets us into trouble. And then some of it is just, you know, wear and tear and, um, not, not having enough recovery. And so, I mean, I've had to learn the hard way, just like most people do what, where my limit is or like that, you know, you're, you don't always want to walk on that knife edge of like, all right, I could get maximal gains if I hang out here at this either super high percentage or super high volume. Um, it's really risky because being at this like, you know, heavy percentage or heavy volume could tip me into the injury category really easily. Right. Right. And if you're like Um, literally, in the middle of a wad during the CrossFit games, that's one thing, but like in your normal day-to-day training. And I feel like so many people get this mentality, especially around CrossFit of like, I have to go all out or it's a waste. And they look at those athletes who are literally in the games, like not just games athletes, but like actual games workouts and think like, well, they push through it there. It's like, that's like the Super Bowl of CrossFit. That is not their everyday training. And that is by no means your everyday training. Yeah. And if, if you're going to get injured, (laughs) it's, and it takes you out of the training game. Not only is it obviously, you know, physically you're going to either have to adapt or back off, but psychologically, if you're, if training and your sport are really important to you, it's really hard because you've, you know, depending on how badly you're injured, you may be completely out of it. And now you're, you're just like kind of a, a ship adrift without much of a goal. And I mean, I was lucky with my, my finger, I was able to get back within about a, a month to kind of at least picking up a barbell again and, and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. even a month was enough. I was able to do some things while I was hurt, but a month was enough to like set me back. And I'm yeah. like, Hey, you know, it's, um, in that case, a freak thing. But if it's, if it's a result of ego or poor programming, um, it's, it's just not worth it. And when yeah. you, when you, when your stress levels are so high from training, right. And like, let's say you're not really mentally on your game because you've just had like two or three weeks of really super high volume and you go in and you go for a PR, even though you're not feeling it, you know, you know, those days when you feel super uncoordinated and the weight, (laughs) the weight feels really heavy. Like those are the times when you really need to listen to yourself and, and, Sometimes you need to shut other people out. And, you know, we tend to be in that really positively encouraging environment where people are like, you can do it, go for it. Like, and they're cheering you on. But you know, those times when you're feeling like, you're like, did somebody put an extra 20 pounds on this bar? Right, like you go to pick the barbell out of the rack and you're like, there's no way this is a 35 pound bar. This has got to be like an 85 pound bar. Yeah. Like, when did did we get 100 pound barbells? Totally. You know, I think those are the days where you have to really weigh um, if it's smart to, to yeah. keep pushing it and, and recovery and, and the training volume are a huge component of that. I mean, I know there's days I've gone in and I feel like, you know, super hot and inflamed. And, um, I just know that those are the days I need to back off. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, injury and the stress component and like the more is more thing really go hand in hand and, totally. you know, there's an injury risk for everything. And, I really, it really drives me nuts when people like think, oh, you're, you're going to get hurt and you're doing all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what, in a large part I'm training. So I, I don't get hurt in the future. Yes. Yes. You know, I want to be a strong kick-ass old lady. Like I don't, (laughs) 
Well, like I, I was, I got in a car accident a couple months ago and, you know, I was T-boned by a truck going probably 30 or 40 miles an hour. And I really believe the only reason that I wasn't injured is because I had strong back muscles that were able to hold my spine in place. Yeah. Or and, like Miranda Oldroyd. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of stuff. Or even, you know, look at women who have babies and they've, they've done sort of some sort of strength training or um, some sort of exercising throughout their pregnancy. And they, they, a lot of them bounce back really quickly and you're like how did they do that but yeah. you know that's a stressful physical Connect. event <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> probably the most stressful yeah. physical event yeah so I like I totally agree I think uh you know as I'm you know I'm almost 36 I'm definitely like physiologically to the point where I'm I would you know on a compared to my peers I would be starting to lose muscle mass and mm-hmm. bone density and all this other stuff. And, you know, luckily my family kind of has a strong constitution um, in terms of like just being kind of hardy and like, you know, we're not right. really super thin <laughs> and, and all that sort of stuff. But I really feel like at this point, I, yeah, I'm training because I like to compete and it's fun and I have goals. But at the same time, my training is also to supplement my long-term health. Yeah, use it or lose it. And, and at some point, I'll probably not Olympic lift anymore, but I really, I feel very strongly that some sort of barbell or strength training needs to be a component of what I do for my entire life from here, you know, from here forward. Yeah. Healthy, happy, and harder to kill, right? Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I, I really need to buy one of those tanks. Oh, nice. uh, they're so amazing. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's use the uh, rest of our time here. We really want to hear about your uh, cookbook. So the performance paleo cookbook, and that's yeah. out January 6th, right? It is so okay. less, less than a month. Yay. Yay it's exciting. <laughs> so tell us about that and how it's different. Well, the, the cookbook is different from my ebook. And I want to kind of just mention that really quickly um, because some folks have been confused as to how it's going to be different. So the ebook uh, that I have out is called the paleo athlete. And it's really the, the kind of theory and recommendations behind how you can tweak a paleo approach to an athlete's nutrition or nutrition for somebody who cares about performance. But the cookbook is really the physical manifestation of how that's all going to happen. So it's the practical side of things, getting people in the kitchen, getting people excited to cook and presenting to them recipes that they can use to obviously fuel their training, but that aren't going to take hours and hours to prepare um, and that they taste good and you want to come back to eat more. So there's no like grilled chicken and steamed broccoli for seven dinners a week. Right. That's your, your fridge isn't just like a cascade of Tupperware. Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, as athletes or as people who train a lot, whether again, whether or not you ever enter into a formal competition, if, if you place priority on going to the gym or on your training and you're spending money on your gear for your sport and at some level you're sacrificing time away from, you know, maybe hanging out with friends or you're being with your family, like there's a, there's an investment there. Totally. Um, you know, nutrition has to become a component of, of what you're doing in terms of what you're, you know, like it, it is as important as the gear or all the other stuff that you're going to buy to do your sport. And, yeah, totally. And, and, and so providing recipes for people that are exciting to cook, they taste really good, but they're easy to do. And they fit in that already reduced time frame that athletes tend to have was, <laughs> <laughs> was really important to me. Um, and so what, what makes the book different as well is kind of how I've structured it. So it's got a chapter on pre-workout and post-workout and it's, you know, little nibbles and food and different combinations. Which and, is huge because I feel like even just us as even like non-paleo authorities, that's, a, we get that question all the time. Like, what do you eat before you work out? How do you eat after you work out? Like, how can you optimize it? And I think more and more people are realizing that the X factor to their training goals and their body composition goals is when and what they eat. Yeah, so I've I've got some, you know, different shakes and drinks and actual like food you can chew and eat and 
<laughs> yeah, because I know different people have different preferences, and they're like, oh, my God, the thought of chewing something after I work out completely grosses me out. Yeah. I would like to be able to drink something um, or vice versa. So whatever, you know, whatever the needs are, there's pre- and post-workout. And then the rest of the book is kind of split up by – it's almost like a module. So there are recipes focused on proteins. There are recipes focused on carbohydrates. And there are recipes focused on vegetables. And then there's some sauces and stuff like that too. Mm. But my idea was to kind of take those different recipes. And I've, I know people really love meal plans, but I, the idea of writing meal plans for people makes my skin crawl. Um, <laughs> I remember you saying that last time. Everyone's yeah. like, give me a meal plan. You're like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. So what I did as a kind of a compromise was I took 50 different combinations of recipes in the book um, and put them together to make a complete meal. So nice. it's kind of like my, I'm like, all right, I'm giving in a little bit. But um, my idea was to allow people to really mix and match the stuff that was in the book and, and come up with different complete meals. So that's in there. And then there's some uh, fueling kind of plans based on the time of day you work out. So I've got seven different kind of general options there for when you work out. And I don't know if you work out in the middle of the night, I just can't help you. <laughs> You have other problems. You might be a vampire. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of how how the book is is set up. Um, what makes this book a little bit different and could potentially make some people get really pissed at me is uh, <laughs> some of the recommendations are just are not what you would call strict paleo. Yeah. However, I don't think that a high level athlete, for the most part, could subsist on a very strict paleo template to their diet and really be successful. And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, uh, being, uh, not adding any salt to your food. Right. That's, like technically is this a tenet of strict paleo or, um, really cutting back on carbohydrates significantly. Athletes need carbohydrate. Like we're, especially people who are crossfitting or doing lots of endurance stuff that involves, intervals. Like right. we're not just going to go out and do a three mile walk. Um, we're going to go out there and like do intervals and be drooling on our, um, on our bike top tube and all this other stuff. So some of the recommendations in the book deviate from that. And again, it's realizing that people who are performance minded have different goals than people who are sedentary and trying to manage their blood sugar and trying to manage their autoimmunity and or, you know, like all of these other cofactors that could be in the general kind of paleo population. So there are some recipes with white potatoes. There are one or two recipes with white rice as an option. Um, and I know that's going to really make people's <laughs> heads explode. But again, for the right person in the right context, you know, as a post-workout option, I, I don't see that it's a problem. Um, again, it depends on the person, but I think for some people knowing that that's an option is the difference between possibly eating anything post-workout, um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and finally just getting some food down their, down their gullet before they <laughs> go, go and do their two a day, you know, stuff like right. that, or they're coaching and they're like, what am I going to eat? Cause they've got a class coming in in 30 minutes. And, you know, there, there are different parameters and different, uh, challenges that, that different athletes have. Yeah. Um, there are some recipes with protein powder, um, different options there. Um, so I think just being really blind to it and saying no athlete should ever, ever, ever drink whey protein and or egg right. white protein. Because our ancestors did not do that. Yeah, should never, ever, ever eat white potatoes, should never, ever, ever eat a, a non-gluten containing grain like white rice. Like this, this sort of stuff needs, in my opinion, just needs to stop. And it's really damaging to a lot of people who are trying to take a paleo approach to their nutrition and they're following extremely strict guidelines. Yeah. And then, you know, three, six months, a year down the road, you're like, why do I suck at this sport? Right. Why am I always tired? Why am I? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm miserable. Should I be mad at my, at everybody all the time? Like, <laughs> Everybody you know, has turned into such an asshole this year. I can't figure it out. Yeah. I really like that it's like focused on easy, easier uh, recipes too. Because I feel like some paleo cookbooks that I have, it's like, well, you can use corn, but you're going to need to stone grind it yourself. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, well, the first thing you need to do is bake your own bread from scratch. 
I'm like, okay, this is not something that I have time to yeah. do. I guess I'm going to have chicken and broccoli again. <laughs> There's very little in the book that's reliant upon, you know, like, oh, I need to go on Amazon and get this special ingredient. Yeah. And it's all stuff you can usually get in a regular grocery store, um, maybe a health food store like Sprouts or or Whole Foods. But that's, I mean, even those things aren't essential. Like, coconut aminos guys like five years ago they didn't really exist and you can exist without them it's okay I promise right well and also like if you are actually if you're eating somewhat paleo chances are that you're already going to those types of stores Mm -hmm. and so it's not like you know it's gonna be wildly different right yeah Yeah. so I I really I really tried to make it how I would eat on a regular basis like this is how I eat it's not there's no deception here there's no like oh well you know, she's going to make it seem super easy, but then she makes complicated recipes. Like this is, this is how I live. This is how I eat. I love simple food. I love, you know, just kind of getting in there and putting something together quickly. That's going to taste good. It's going to make me want to come back for more, but it's not going to take me three hours to make dinner. Yeah. You know, so you're going on a book tour in January. Yes. Where are you going? So people can find you. Well, so we're kind of in the in the midst of planning the exact locations and stuff, but I'm going out on book tour with my friend Ciara Hanna, who has the blog Popular Paleo, and her book is called The Frugal Paleo Cookbook. So it's it's about budget stuff, but it's also about just like making the most of your time in the kitchen. And not only are we really great friends in real life, but I <laughs> I really love her approach to nutrition. She's kind of like me. She's kind of like, you know what? Desserts are for once in a while. Like, focus on nutritious food, nutrient-dense. Right. You don't need, like, a paleo chocolate lover's cupcake cookbook. Yeah. So we really – we kind of – our philosophies really gel. And so we're going out on tour together, at least for kind of the western part of our tour. We're going to start in January, and we're hitting Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Salt Lake City – because uh, a lot of people were like, come to Salt Lake City, uh, Dallas, Austin, Phoenix, and San Diego. So that's the that's the West Coast portion of our tour, and that's pretty much going to be the first two weeks of... Um, I noticed you're Steph- not coming to Steph- Denver. You, you, need, <laughs> no, you need to add well, Denver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you didn't let me finish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be doing that um, between kind of the 6th of January and the 17th-ish. Um okay. 17th, 18th of January, we're going to take a little break and try to let the weather get a little bit better in some areas of the country. And then the the plan is to um, hit places like Denver, Chicago, Atlanta, D.C., New York, Boston, kind of like the the Midwest to the East Coast. Yay. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so we're we're trying to do as much as we can. And we're going to be hitting a mixture of Barnes & Noble locations as well as some independent bookstores that we have kind of in the works so um yeah we're hoping people come out and hear us talk and we're not just going to talk for like an hour and kind of just tell about our stories our plan is to actually give like a mini seminar where people can really walk away with good information on how to use our books right um because that's like you know you get this great book and you're like okay now what yeah Um, and and so how to use some of the concepts that we that we think are really important. And oh, that's then, a great idea. Yeah, so that's going to be um, our book tour. And uh, and can people pre-order still on your website, or is that past? Pre-order is still available okay. through um, a multitude of different sites and and stuff like that. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Google Play, iTunes. Um, what am I missing? Indie is on there as well. And right now, I've extended my kind of bonus gift. So if you pre-order before the end of December, I have a 30-page fitness and nutrition guide that people can just pick up. Um, It's a PDF, and you can go to my site. The information is there. But it's it's like you're coming to my seminar, but it's in a PDF form. So if if you're like, oh, I want to, you know, hear you talk about nutrition, but I can never get out to you know, see, see where I'm at, then it's a really great companion. And the stuff in it is completely unique to what's in the book. So it's like a a 30 page, like juicy little, you know, (laughs) info packed kind of supplement. And it's really, it's really cool. So 
that's available as well. And the pre-order price is 25% off the cover price. So you, you still get a really good deal. And that's all the way up until the book comes out. Sweet. Wonderful. So that's again, January 6th is when it comes out. Yeah. Everyone can find you on stupideasypaleo.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, everything under the sun, social media. <laughs> if someone yep. has a question, what's the best way to contact you with a question? The best way is to either go on the Facebook page and send me a direct message um, or there's a contact page on my blog that people can send inquiries to. Wonderful. Well, wow. Yeah. It's already been an hour. Yeah. <laughs> we just packed that hour. Yeah. Thank you, Steph, for coming back. It was so fun talking to you again. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And we will hopefully talk to you again soon. Yeah, and we will definitely see you if you come yes, to Denver. Yes, we will. Hey, Steph, yeah. will you stay on the line after we get off? And I have a question for you. Sure thing. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.